This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to another live broadcast of Cascade of History. We are broadcasting live from the old master-at-arms quarters in the historic Magnuson Park, which used to be the Sandpoint Naval Air Station. Got aviation history going back more than 100 years in this very spot. Uh, we get together every time, uh, every Sunday night at this time, 8 p.m. Pacific time, and uh, talk about Northwest history with people who are doing interesting things with Northwest history. Sometimes we listen to old archival tapes. Um, uh, we just try to cover Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia with stuff that's going on that you don't really hear about in other places on the radio. Um, so let's see. Uh, I am Felix Bunnell. I'm the host and producer, and I've got an interesting show for you uh, put together for you tonight. Uh, let's see. A bit later on, we're going to have our second installment of the old Northwest Narrative series. That's uh, scripts written for broadcast 65 years ago by Nard Jones, a local historian and author. Uh, we're going to talk uh, a bit later on after that with Nick Bierman of the group working to save the Ryan House in Sumner. Um, they had a big fundraiser tonight in Sumner, I think at Purdy's Restaurant, a spaghetti dinner. And I wanted to find out how it went. I wasn't able to go myself. Uh, don't have time to drive down there and have spaghetti and then make it back in time to do the show tonight. But I thought the next best thing was, would be to check in with Nick Bierman. You might remember Nick was on the show with us a couple weeks ago when we were live from the Parkland School. He popped in to give us an update on what was going on with the Ryan House. So we'll find out how that spaghetti dinner went. I just love the idea of any 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 excuse to have a spaghetti dinner fundraiser for something. I think is a, uh, it's a wonder in this modern day and age. Um, let's see. I, earlier this week, or I guess let's see what's Sunday. So I guess on Thursday I had a chance to go up to um, Clark Park in Everett and see the historic gazebo up there. I did a story about it on Friday for the other radio station, for Cairo uh, News Radio. But it's uh, another one of these stories where there's a publicly owned historic resource, uh, a group of citizens who want to do something about it, and a group of citizens who want to do something else about it. It's sort of a citizen versus citizen uh, demolition or preservation effort. Anyway, very complicated story. Um, I might put a link to that on uh, the Cascade of History Facebook page the story I did for Cairo Radio, but I'm hoping to have uh, in an upcoming show either have someone from the uh, from Historic Everett or one of the organizations working to preserve the historic 1921 Clark Park gazebo. Maybe, who knows? Maybe we'll do a live show from the gazebo one Sunday night as it gets uh, later into the spring. We we'll actually see what we're doing out inside of a, inside a public park in the city of Everett. Um, okay. Oh. You know, it's just after 8 p.m. Pacific time. We're live in the studio. This is this great live block of programming here on Space 101.1 FM. Not many stations uh, playing anything other than just pre-recorded stuff or their glorified iPods right now on a Sunday night. Uh, but that's not true at this wonderful community radio station, Space 101.1 FM. Um, in fact, if you go to our website, space101fm.org, you can see the entire schedule of other programs that are offered uh, seven days a week here on the station. You can also donate there. We're completely community-supported. We get lots of support from private donors. For Culture, the King County Cultural Resources Agency gives support to the station. Um, lots of great programming. Anyway, um, coming up at 9 o'clock, it's a live broadcast of Jay's Radio Hour. Jay's will be spinning more of the wonderful century-old 78 RPM records uh, from a collection of hillbilly and jazz records imported directly from their home in Tennessee. This guy combs the world uh, trying to rescue 78 RPM records uh, in person to buy big dusty boxes of things and bring them home and sort through them and pick out the best ones and play them on the show from 9 to 10 every Sunday night here on Space 101.1 FM. And he'll be, he'll be coming into the station probably sometime in the next 45 minutes or so and we'll get the show set up and we'll hand, I'll hand off the microphone to him at 9 o'clock. But stay, stay tuned for Jay's Radio Hour after uh, Cascade of History. And if, if you were tuned in previously, you heard History is Music, Music is, Hist Music is History with DJ Grumpy, also another great show. Uh, anyway, uh, okay, 
But our main focus of the show tonight is an archival presentation. Um, I I heard I didn't watch it, but I heard coverage of the NBA All-Star Game a week or so ago, and they talked about what was the highest scoring game in history. One of the teams scored more than 200 points. It just it sounded ridiculous. Um, anyone who's lived in the Seattle area for a long time is still probably bitter about the fact that Seattle Supersonics you know, were purchased by out-of-town owners who, surprise, surprise, moved them out of town. Or if you're like me and you've lived here for a really long time, you, rem- you remember back to 1979 and that magical championship season where they won their first and one and only world championship, uh, NBA world championship, and sort of set the city on fire. And it was just a really amazing thing. Um, 20 years ago, bear with me here, 20 years ago was the 25th anniversary of that championship season. And on the actual 25th anniversary, which isn't isn't right now, it's coming up later in the spring, it's June 1st is when that uh, they won that game. Back in 2004, I was working at the Museum of History and Industry, and I put together a little panel discussion to mark that uh, to mark that event and to get from people who were there. We recorded it. We got together with a live audience in the old McEachern Auditorium, which is torn down when they tore down the old Mohai at Mont Lake. Um, on the panel was Greg Heberlin, who's a retired Seattle Times journalist, and Greg's still around. I think we're Facebook friends. I see stuff from him every now and then. But there are two other panelists have have since de- uh, become deceased. Uh, one is the great voice of the Sonics, Bob Blackburn, who is just a, you know, I idolize Bob Blackburn. Great voice, really nice guy, too. At, at one point in this panel, I referred to, I mistakenly kind of stumbled over my words and called him Blob Backburn. And he said, oh, no, that's okay, Felix. Steve Allen did the same thing to me back in the 50s in Los Angeles. He had a really, really nice way about him. And then the other uh, member of the panel was uh, John Johnson, or JJ, who also is now deceased, but a member of that championship team. So we're going to hear two big chunks of this program. It's not the entire recording. I think it's I think it's more than an hour if you listen to everything. But I picked out two sort of 20-minute, 15, 20-minute segments of it. So we'll listen to both of those tonight. Kind of to think about this 45th anniversary coming up in June. Think about the fact it's been 16 years since the Sonics left town. I think they left in 2008, if I'm doing my math correctly. Um, and just so much has changed. Uh, so much about professional sports has changed around the country, but so much has changed about Seattle sports. And, you know, we're, 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 we're more cynical now. We're a little more, uh, a little less uh, naive than we were in 1979, maybe far less naive than we were in 2004, you know, four years before the Sonics left town. But uh, all right, so this, uh, we'll, we'll play this first chunk of this, of this uh, panel discussion from t- 2004. Um, and we'll be back with all the other things we talked about with uh, hearing about the spaghetti dinner update and we'll dip into the old Nard Jones archives to read one of his scripts, the second episode from uh, 1959. Uh, So I'm Felix Bunnell on Cascade of History and this is just, we're going to start right at the start of the program. You can hear my voice has changed a little bit since 2004. I don't think it's the speed of the tape. I think I was just a little little less sure of myself at the microphone uh, and a little younger, of course. So uh, let's, uh, let's go back almost exactly 20 years to a night at the June 1st, 2004 at the Museum of History and Industry. Here on Space 101.1 FM, it's Cascade of History with Felix Bunnell. I want to thank everybody for coming out to the Museum of History and Industry tonight. My name is Felix Bunnell. I'm the Deputy Director of the Museum. And tonight we're here to mark the 25th anniversary of the Sonics NBA World Championship. So we'll spend the next hour or so chatting about memories from that 78-79 season and talk about current NBA and maybe the future of the NBA as well as the impact of that big night, June 1st, 1979, on Seattle and the whole Puget Sound region. Now let's go ahead and introduce our panelists. Standing immediately to my left and to your right is Greg Heberlein, uh, who was with the Seattle Times for about 32 years and who covered the Sonics in that championship season and also retired a few years ago um, and in the business uh, section and who actually, we'll find out a little bit about this later, played for the Sonics briefly uh, many years ago. Uh, next on the panel is Bob Blackburn, who's a legendary voice of the Seattle Sonics, and who, along with Leo Lassen and Dave Niehaus, I think is probably one of the three most recognizable voices in this area, if not uh, much of the Northwest or the West Coast. And last but not least, John Johnson, who, uh, of course, is known better as JJ, who played for the Sonics as well as played for the Portland Trailblazers and the Houston Rockets. So uh, maybe we just get to go ahead and get started. Um, just what your favorite memory or what your fondest memory of that championship season was? Is there one particular moment that stands out and why? I think it was the opportunity I had to make J.J. a star that year. Here we go. Well, I had to get that one in before he got me because J.J., the first thing he's going to say was, Blackburn, I made a star out of you. No, not only you. Get up to your microphone. Not only you. 
bunch of guys, including Greg, because he didn't have no juicy quotes until he talked to me. <laughs> I would make him wait. I'll be the last one to interview with him. My uh, my favorite memory, I think that year, the most visible memory that I bring back, uh, besides Gus throwing the ball in the air in Landover, was uh, Game Six in Phoenix when. Uh, Seattle was down three games to two, had to win, and I believe they were behind by as much as 13 in the third quarter and eight at the end of the third quarter. And that was a game where uh, I know Paul Silas had a, had a, was a big factor, and uh, he played 30 minutes that day, which was uh, one of his longest stints of the season. And, of course, Seattle came back and won that, went on to win the title. J.J., I want to ask you a question about that game because I have often said that was the day the Sonics won the championship. It was when Garfield's herds uh, shot did not go in. Had it gone in, they would have been playing instead of you guys. I still feel that you won the championship that day. How do you feel? Well, I have a tendency to agree with you, Bob, because that was a defining moment. When we won that game, that brought everybody's confidence back up uh, because uh, – when you're down three to two, and you, you got to go on the road, and Phoenix was a problematic uh, team for us because they gave uh, Jack Sigma a lot of problems, and we had matchups, and they spread the floor, and they were a good shooting ball club. But that game there, I think uh, we redeemed ourselves from then then on. It was smooth sailing. Greg, I don't know how you feel about it, but I think one of my great memories of the year was not an individual moment. But it, it, it kind of solidified something I've been saying ever since is that, that offense wins ball games, but defense wins championships. And I remember the Sonics that year, all season long, they kept winning ball games with defense. Well, it, it was like they had enough offense to win most of the games, but they needed that special defense. You just don't see teams, you don't even see teams, very many teams today who play defense the way the Sonics did. Uh, some people slow the ball down. That's their version of defense. But the Sonics uh, play just uh, just incredible defense. Can any of you folks in the audience tell me who had the uh, who had the most assists on the team that year? Would anybody want to venture a guess? Who? This guy here, JJ. You're right. He was the first point forward in the NBA, and he had. He had 48 more assists than Gus Williams, who was the point guard that year. His uh, average was 4.4, which was the team lead. And uh, he had 13 assists late in the season, which, which was the single game high. Um, but, but back to defense uh, for uh, a moment. Uh, what allowed us to really uh, be a good defensive team First of all, we, we had a lot of uh, intelligent players. And we had super quickness in our guards and uh, Gus Williams and Dennis Johnson, who was not only good on the ball defensive player, but he could also block shots. And then you had, I had speed of a turtle, but <laughs> I had great anticipation. Very fast and turtle. Though. So we, we could extend our defense out to full court. And a lot of pro teams, they couldn't handle the pressure and the traps. And we caught them off guard, and all of a sudden, you know, we might be down two. In another minute and a half, we up eight, ten points. In the ball game, the momentum had completely turned around. I think you had, you had two guys, DJ and JJ, who put defense above all else most of the time. And then you had a bunch of other guys who kind of followed suit. It, w it was uh, – you know, it was almost like a disease. They, it, it, it became a, a, def, a very important point for them. And you also had a coaching staff that recognized the skills of these people and used them to the fullest. Greg, I thought, too, on, on that team, and J.J., I don't know how you feel about it, great starting five, but to me you also had some great guys coming off the bench with, with special roles, and they all seemed to know what their role was, and when they came into the game, that was what they concentrated on. Paul Silas concentrated on the boards and defense. Uh, Wally Walker, he concentrated on getting some quick baskets, uh, things like that. No, that's totally true, Bob. Uh, all the guys uh, had special roles, even even starting five. You know, uh, uh, 
with my ball handling skills, teams really couldn't press us or pressure us because we get the ball off the board and instead of me taking off, my t number one responsibility was to get the ball and our guards took off. And we got a lot of easy buckets in transition. And then Freddie Brown coming in the game, he just go stand over in the corner and wait for something to develop. <laughs> and the fans, he would he'd be there so long. The fans have to beg him to shoot the ball. Tell us about Freddie Brown's defense, JJ. <laughs> Freddie. Well, you always have some we're pretty playing, good comments on that. We're playing the Washington Bullets, I believe. Well, we were playing them. And Bernie Bickerstaff, who uh, coached uh, up here in a, a few years past, he told uh, Phil Chenier, one of the guards, he says, take the matador. <laughs> but in all fairness to Freddie, though, he wasn't noted for defense. But at the same time, he put a lot of he put a lot of uh, pressure on you because uh, if he got that ball, he he had a great opportunity to score. He was going to score for you. Well, you you needed an instant offense kind of guy sometimes. I mean, that was that was very important, and and you didn't mind giving up a little defense once in a while. Uh, Bob said something that I I think may have stepped over the line. Uh oh. I I thought we weren't using the two words. Wally Walker tonight. <laughs> well, who said that? www.com. <laughs> WallyWalkerWas.com. <laughs> you know, one, one thing I would uh, like to, uh, I, I don't know whether you remember this, and I, I, JJ's probably heard this story. A lot of you remember the championship the year before when the Sonics lost to Washington. And remember one of the things that day was DJ went 0 for 14. Well, the next year, when the Washington Bullets played there for, I believe it was in late October, early November, they had a game out at the Kingdom, and they, uh, the trainer for the Washington Bullets, I forgot his name. You remember his name? He, he, he was, he was quite a guy, but he was, he was a real character and everything. Dennis comes down in the first quarter, takes a shot from the right corner, right in front of their bench, and the, and the uh, trainer yells out, DJ, that's 0 for 15. <laughs> Loud enough, of course, so a lot of people could hear it. Were you on the court when he did that? And then, then he went up to about Probably. 0 for 18, and Dennis finally got a basket. Yeah, but, you know, that, that, that hurt us, but uh, I just think uh, the inexperience, uh, we came out of the dark, the, the, the tunnel, in the dark, you know, 5 and 17, and we expended so much energy getting off the ground, then getting above 500. Then we started believing we were a good team. Then the fans started believing we were a good team and the coaching staff. And um, it was like everybody in the state was just so happy to say we're going to the NBA Finals instead of saying we're going to win the NBA Finals. And, and Lenny, I thought, was a little generous with playing time with too many people, and you, when you get to those big games, you got to shorten your rotation. You know, you want everybody to get an opportunity to play, but you got to play the guys who's getting it done for you. You're talking about Lenny and and putting guys in and and uh, maybe letting him stay too long. Remember the final game against Phoenix at the Kingdom before you guys went on to play Washington, and you guys had about and you probably remember this, Greg. They had about a well, about a 14 or 15 point yeah, lead yeah. and about two minutes to play and so Lenny started clearing the bench putting some of the guys in that hadn't played very much and those two guards Westfall and who was the other guy uh, uh, Eddie, who yeah boozy Don boozy those two guys got real hot and they brought the team back and they brought the team back and finally the Sonics they won the ball game and I, I, I think we all knew they were going to win it but they they won it by four points now, afterwards, in, in, the, in the room that they have for where the players and the wives and, and the press and stuff uh, would congregate after the ball game, Marilyn Wilkins, Lenny's wife, was in there. And I'll never forget, my wife and I, Lenny walked through the door. Marilyn walked up to him, looked him right in the face, and she said, Don't you ever do that again! <laughs> yeah. That's just one of the one of the moments off the off the record. What was it like going from the Coliseum in the seventy seven seventy eight season into the Kingdom for the seventy eight seventy nine season? 
What was that now? What was it like moving to the kingdom from the relatively small Colosseum to the huge cavernous kingdom? Well, let, uh, we let J.J. answer that as a player. Uh, you know, you had a lot more people yelling for you. Yeah, they, you know, once they finally got it set up, it was uh, it was pretty uh, pretty comfortable. You know, and like Bob said, we led the league in attendance that year with over with twenty some thousand. At least, yeah, because you had some crowds in there of thirty-two and thirty-three, and I think the biggest one was probably about forty-two, wasn't it? Uh, I I don't remember the high, but what I remember from looking up some of the numbers was early game two there were only seventeen thousand in there, which was the smallest of the year. Then they went on to get eighteen crowds of greater than twenty thousand, and the average was a little over twenty. You you guys wouldn't have scored in that year for the crowd size. But yeah. as far as uh, it's like the Mariners and yeah. yeah. As far as the Coliseum, personally, I felt that we always had a distinct advantage, what you call home court, because the crowd just went bunkers in there, especially in the latter part of the third period or midway through the fourth quarter after we had made a big rally. And uh, and during the playoffs, you know, it was just we had to use hand signals because you couldn't hear anything. It was so deafening. Then you had... This big guy, who I never met personally, but the Weedle, he walk around <laughs> <laughs> with the University of Washington uh, cheerleaders, cheerleaders yeah. and the drums, yeah. and it was just like you felt like there was going to be an earthquake come uh, trembling down. What about you, Bob, as a broadcaster in the different venues? Well, uh, the, the Kingdom obviously was probably a little bit easier to broadcast from, uh, for the reason that the crowd didn't overpower me as a broadcaster. I mean, sometimes at, at, the, uh, at the Coliseum, it got so loud. I remember one, <laughs> one night, of course, it wasn't me, but it was uh, Slick Watts. Uh, I, I forget what he was doing. He was, um, I forget whether it was Slick after he had got through playing or something, but he was, he was c c doing some commentary or something with somebody, not me, but somebody. And all I remember, him, a great quote of his, <laughs> He, he said on here, he said, it's so loud, he said, in here, I can't hear my ears. <laughs> and and it, it kind of would make, make me kind of feel that same way. I mean, you, you, you get overpowered by the sound, and you didn't know whether the people could understand or hear you, because I do go back to some of the tapes of some of those games I had, and the crowd did overpower the broadcaster at times. But, hey, so what? It, it made the fans out there in Radio Land feel a lot better because they, they were part of that guy's, you know, the people yelling too. Yeah. What about you, Greg? Well, I, uh, from my writing standpoint, it didn't make any difference, but um, except we were a little bit farther away from the paper. But um, I, I, certainly the cavernous nature of the kingdom hurt the Sonics' ability to just vocally crush an opponent. And, and I think, you know, they lost some key games in there. I remember that one game where Freddie missed the shot late in the game in the playoffs. It, in the, in the 78 playoffs, right. um, you know, and you thought, well, we didn't have, you don't have the same home court advantage. On the other hand, Seattle lost that series to uh, the Bullets, lost the championship to the Bullets on their home court in the Coliseum. Right. So, so it didn't always work that way. But but it did seem like the club had a little better advantage when they were in the Coliseum than when they were in How the How much dome. does the crowd uh, really affect you guys out there, J.J.? I mean, can, can they do what... What us guys as writers and the fans uh, feel like the crowd does and really gets you guys going? Oh, sure. You know, it's like uh, a, mom a momentum effect. You know, uh, the crowd started getting uh, crazy and the players want to, you know, do well for the crowd. And, uh, and it's just the opposite on the road. You want to jump up your opponent early so you can keep the crowd out of the game because when you got to a tight place that's uh, that's really loud and boisterous. It can really uh, help you in uh, in making the other team turn turn the ball over, not being able to um, execute their plays, not hear what's going on, and it's uh, it takes uh, another team out of their comfort zone when the crowd's really into the game. Was there a place that was particularly tough to play on the road in those years? Well, when we played, you know, that was usually a full house everywhere. But naturally, you know, um, right off the bat, I don't know, what would, what would you say, Bob? Uh, 
I tell you what, for the championship team that year, I don't think there was a tough place on the road. Yeah. I, didn't you feel I changed, that way? I changed my mind. I really, I, I really felt that way about the team and the way they could play on the road and win on the road. Phoenix. I don't know, Greg, how about you? What's your opinion on Phoenix that? Phoenix was the was, Yeah, was Phoenix would have been tough. <laughs> it was uh, tough. But I think that Seattle had the ability to put down a team so quickly that it, that it short-circuited the fans. You know, they would take the fans out of the game so often. You know, except Phoenix was loud. There were yeah. there were a couple of places that were loud, but well, in Phoenix, like, like Boston. Yeah, you know, like JJ said, though Phoenix, so they they were a tough team to to, to match up with that year, with you guys, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that that was part of the problem with Phoenix. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't that year, but I, I've got to have JJ tell you the story about Kansas City. One night he was on my post game show, and he did something that nobody in the NBA has ever done before, since, or anything like that. What did you do that night, J.J.? I made you a star. I realize that, but what did you actually do? I interviewed you. I, t- I told people in the air waves that you were a great tennis player, and I'll spot you six game, beat you six love. How did you get my microphone? I don't remember. <laughs> he could- took it away from me. <laughs> He came out and he grabbed it. He said, Blackbird, he says, you're always doing the interview. And he said, it's about time somebody asks you some questions. And he took off. That's- it was kind of a cute story. <laughs> he did a pretty good job in interview. <laughs> Who had the biggest ego on the championship team? Uh-oh. <laughs> on the championship team? Uh, not including the broadcasters, of course. Um. <laughs> <laughs> If I say anything like that, it would get yeah. to whoever it yeah. was, and the next morning I'd have a shiv in my ribs. <laughs> you know, we, you know, we really didn't have guys with big egos, and we had a great mix of uh, individuals. That uh, you know, we had some young bucks and and DJ Sigma, uh, Gus Wally. Then you had some gray beards and Silas Autry. Uh, Dick Snyder, Freddie Brown, myself. So we had a we had a good blend. I don't think Seattle could ever put a team together like that because we were like a, we were an odd group because you know we didn't fit the pieces of the puzzle that you would say this is the championship uh, ingredients because uh, like um, I was basically the point guard. And Gus was basically a shooting guard. And we had guys that uh, had one common uh, factor, and that was about winning. And we got thirsty for it. The fans got thirsty for it. And we had guys, older guys, we were like the lieutenants. And the younger guys were the soldiers. And we didn't try to step on their toes because they was going to be featured more in the offense. They was going to score most of the points. They was going to get most of the publicity in the newspapers and the airwaves because all of us guys had made all-star teams before, and the only thing we wanted to do was win. We didn't care if there was bold letters, Sigmund scores 25, just as long as the Sonics won. Felix, you mentioned the word ego, and Greg, I'd like you to, to, to second, not necessarily second my motion, but the way I felt about... And the way I've always felt about the NBA or, or professional athletes, they all have an ego. They have to have an ego. Now, how they, how they control that ego, to me, is what makes the difference between championship ball clubs and others. Because if they all control their ego properly, then I feel that the chemistry on the ball club is what gets them through. Yeah, we're taking a break there from our night, uh, excuse me, 2004 panel discussion at the Old Museum of History and Industry. And you can tell it's the Old Museum of History and Industry if you ever attended events there, what's that, 20 years ago, because you can hear that 60 hertz kind of buzz in the old PA system there. Could never get rid of that. Tried a different uh, ways to re-plugging in the mixing board different ways. Um, that panel has uh, two gentlemen who are no longer with us, Bob Blackburn and John J.J. Johnson, uh, the broadcaster, Black Bob Blackburn, and... Uh, 
member of the Sonics 79 championship team, JJ, and then Greg Heberlin, who's uh, still around and a retired uh, journalist for the Seattle Times. But it sure is great. I love hearing those guys' voice. I mean, I was pretty green when I moderated this panel 20 years ago, and I just sort of got out of their way. I, I can hear me chuckling in the background, but most of the time it's Bob's asking the questions, and which, which was the way it should have been. I, I had such a good time doing that and hearing this tape, hearing Bob's voice and JJ's voice and Greg's voice. It's, it's all coming back. And I was thinking about the weird echoes of history where when we did that panel on the 25th anniversary – Obviously, the championship had been 25 years previous. Now it's 45 years ago. That would have been, in 1979, that would have been like talking about something from the 30s, 1934. I, I think that way a lot about if something was 20 years ago now versus if it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, how the time all kind of uh, expands and collapses and stretches and compresses. So anyway, it's uh, I'm having a good time listening to this old panel discussion. I hope you're enjoying it too. We've got another about 20 minute uh, chunk of it we're going to get to in a moment. Well, I'll take a pause here to say you're listening to Space 101.1 F- uh, LPFM here at Magnuson Park in Seattle. This is Cascade of History. I am Felix Bunnell. Uh, we're going to hear more from Bob Blackburn and JJ and Greg Heberlin in just a moment. After that, we're going to be checking in with uh, Nick Bierman from Save the Ryan House about how the big spaghetti dinner went tonight down there at Purdy's Restaurant in Sumner. Um, before we do that, though, I want to dip into the Nard Jones archives. This is the second episode in the Northwest Narrative Series, which aired on KXA Radio, 770 AM, 730 every morning weekdays for about a year from early 1959, sometime into 1960. This is episode two. It's called Child Founders of Seattle. It's kind of a continuation from the first episode we heard last week. So I'm just going to read this. The 12 children who helped found Seattle were these. Louisa Denny, Lenora Denny, Roland Denny, or Roland Denny, I think as they call them actually, and the Low children, Alonzo, Mary, John, and Minerva, and the five little bells, Gertrude, Laura, Olive, Virginia, and Lavinia. They came across the plains from the east, and the founders of Seattle went first to Portland, Oregon. Then they heard of a wonderful land to the north, a place called Puget Sound. John Lowe and David Denny came first, driving some cattle into the Shehalis Valley for winter range. Then came the others and the children. They came in a schooner called the Exact. It was on the way to Queen Charlotte Island with gold prospectors, but its Captain Folger had no objection to landing a few immigrants at Puget Sound if they could pay their way. So that schooner cleared the mouth of the Columbia on the 7th of November, 1851, and dropped anchor off Alki Point six days later on November 13, 1851. Think of that. It says eight days to get from Portland to Seattle. I think he means six. Today we make the trip in a few hours by car or in a few minutes by plane. Not long after the first settlers came, they began looking around for a likely place to start a permanent town. The land was pretty much alike in all directions. They knew the new community would have to depend on selling lumber and spars to San Francisco and elsewhere, so the prime consideration was a deep harbor for ships. Mr. Bell and Mr. Bourne bought an Indian canoe for some trinkets and bread and began searching. It was Arthur Denny who heaved the lead to find Deep Harbor while Bell and Boren paddled. They found that Deep Harbor. It was Elliott Bay. If you want to see where Seattle really began, then stand at the corner of First Avenue and Yesler Way and try to imagine what these pioneers saw there. A little meadow of salt grass, an old Indian house no longer occupied, covered now with wild rose bushes. That was all there was of the Seattle that has come to be. And that, again, the second episode in the Northwest Narrative series written by Nard Jones back in the 1950s. And now let's rejoin our panel at the Museum of History in Seattle back on June 1st, 2004. Lots of stuff has changed in the last 25 years um, here in Seattle. And I guess I want to hear from each of you how you describe how Seattle has changed um, using basketball as a comparison. Looking at that year and the city's reaction and the region's reaction to that championship, and things that have happened in the meantime in terms of how the population's changed and just how the feel of the city has changed. So more the cultural side of the of the sport rather than the actual game part of it. Well, when the, when the Sonics won the title, the Seahawks were like three years old. Uh, the, the Mariners were like two years old. So on the sports front, there really there really wasn't the Sonics were the thing and deserve to be the thing. Um, now, uh, the city's a lot bigger. It's probably more cosmopolitan. There, there's, a, there's a greater demand for the entertainment dollar. And I think teams have to work extra hard, even harder today than they did back then, uh, to be competitive enough to attract those dollars. 
I think the dollars are so big now, too. I don't care what sport it is. If you don't have a winning team, you're not going to draw too well. I mean, money's become a huge thing. Uh, hasn't it, J.J.? Wouldn't you like to be playing ball now? <laughs> Wake me up. <laughs> I tell you. You're just born too soon. No, but, you know, I always have people come up to me and say, well, J.J., you was born 15 years too, too soon. But you, you look at the history of the game, it's all relevant. You know, you look at the great players like Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, you know, what they make. They probably, at the tail end of their career, they're lucky if they made $175,000, $200,000. I came in the, in the league as a rookie making 150000 a year. So it was, it's all relevant. In the, and uh, the, with the inflation and stuff, uh, but the market, uh, the game has changed so much and becomes so it's, it's, it's international game now, and it's and so much uh, commercial market that's involved in the game, and uh, ESPN and, and television revenue, and that's where a lot of that money come from. Back when we were playing, it wasn't there. You know, somebody recently, and Greg, maybe you probably read this too. And I, I forget whose column it was or what players they were talking about, but it was being aimed at some of the young players that are in the NBA now, and they said those kids don't know anything about the history of the NBA or, or what went ahead of them, and they, they don't know enough to, to really appreciate it. Do you feel that way? Oh, totally. You know, you, you get most of these young kids, they, they probably tell you they never heard of Oscar Robertson or uh, – <clears throat> Some of the, uh, John Havlicek or Dave DeBusher, some of the uh, great players, you know, they, uh, they'll tell you Dr. J. But, you know, people who's not a basketball purist to have a tendency to forget Dr. J copied this game from Connie Hawkins. And Connie, by the time he got to the NBA, you know, he started getting, he became injury prone and he would he had money guaranteed from a lawsuit from the ABA. So uh, people remember Dr. J. Uh, it was, uh, they don't even remember Elgin Baylor. But kids now, and it's understandable because, first of all, mentally, they don't, most of them don't go to school for, for uh, three years or four years. Uh, socially, they're not... Uh, uh, ready to adapt to uh, society because they're still too young and immature and they're easily uh, uh, to be gullible and misled. And they think that they're, they are, they invented basketball. They're the greatest thing that ever happened. But, you know, it's just like the better you know your personnel, it's easier to, to make adjustments. The better you know the history of your subject matter, subject matter is easier to uh, translate it onto someone else. Greg, you know, you, you're a great writer. I mean, really, this, this, this man, I, I like the stories he wrote because he was so honest. And, I mean, he, he covered the game so well. He wasn't one of these guys that was always looking for the negative. But how do you feel about what has happened in the NBA? A lot of people say that the ESPN highlight films at night have, have kind of... Uh, perpetrated the thing where the, the young kids are so anxious to do things one-on-one, -on -one, be, you know, in other words, be individual stars to get on the, on the highlight show and things like that. Do you, do you, do you have some comments on that? Well, I, certainly that must be true. You, you see it a lot. But to me, one of the big elements is uh, something that J.J. just touched on was <laughs> you got 18-year-olds going to the NBA, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds. You know, in the old days, you had everybody had to be 21, 22, 23. Well, that extra couple of years can make a big difference in in maturity. You know, in knowing what it takes to win a ball game rather than maybe miss a dunk. Uh, I mean, there's just so many ways that those extra years uh, factor in, and and uh, I, I guess I I'm saddened that so many young kids are now uh, allowed to come out. I, I understand the economics. I understand that if you're from a poor family or even a rich family and somebody's going to offer you millions, uh, it might be better to take it. 
when you can still walk than a few years later when maybe you get injured or something. But but still, I, I, I regret it. Do you feel it's affected the game itself quite a bit? Uh, I don't know about quite a bit. It's affected the game. I, I, I can't say whether it's whether it's been an overwhelming factor. Um, Charity has sure affected the game because, like I alluded to earlier, these kids come out, they're not fundamentally sound, uh, and they're not ready. Most of them are not ready to play. LeBron James was an exception. Carmelo Anthony was an exception. But most of these kids that come out, they're not ready to play. They're not, they're not ready for the grind. They're not ready for the physical uh, punishment. But another thing I like to bring up, I think, has affected the game is uh, that three-point line and, and and the one-on-one defense. Now everybody's switching everything and talking about a rotation. And the NBA is a copycat league, so everybody's doing it. But why switch on a guy 30, 40 feet from the basket, plus these guys, majority of these guys nowadays can't shoot. They can't shoot. I was watching the game before I came over here tonight. Detroit and Indiana. Detroit was shooting seventeen <laughs> percent. I could do that. I could do that on my knees in the bathtub. <laughs> and you, but you know, let's be realistic. Look at the Sonics roster. And everybody think Ray Allen's a great shooter, but you look at his field goal percentage. You look at Freddie's field goal percentage. Adele Ellis and those guys are great shooters. But you can't tell me you're shooting 41, 42%. You're a great shooter. You may be a great scorer, but you're not a great shooter. Okay, JJ, answer me this question then. I, I did a, a study one time looking at the early years in the NBA, back in the late 40s and the 50s, and the championship teams of those years, their shooting percentage would be 29, 31, 32%. Now, the championship teams and a lot of the teams are shooting 49 and 50 and 51%. So when you say the guys can't shoot anymore, somebody's got to be putting the ball no, through the hoop with no, those percentages. No, Bob, you, you were being misled by the, once again, I might add, <laughs> by the evolution, the evolution of the game. You know, the 24-second clock was instituted to speed right. up the game. Guys started, started shooting jump shots. Uh you had bigger uh, human. The human beings got bigger, and started opening up the three-second lane. And then you had the entertainment factor, where you had to score because the fans didn't want to go watch a soccer game; they wanted to go and watch a basketball game. And nowadays, they the game has changed again. When I came in the league, you can hand check a guy; you can ride the guy like a little pony. Now you can't impede his progress with nothing if he's going to the basket. You know, they, so the game has changed. It's just all it's just all part of the evolution of the game. I think there are a couple other factors too. In the early days of the game, there was almost a philosophy. The offensive philosophy was throw the puck in and get the rebound. You know, that was just they're just they just shot like crazy uh, as often as quickly. That's why you had guys getting thirty and forty and fifty rebounds a game in those days. <laughs> Uh, secondly, I think the, the quality of the athlete has improved immeasurably. Uh, I think that's a, another big difference. Yeah, that's true. But the, but the one, one, thing, one thing hasn't changed. Most of these players nowadays are not smart. They don't make intelligent decisions. And that's why when you got some smart veteran players, they're going to beat the young upcoming studs every time because they know the game and they know how to motivate themselves. And, you know, you always hear people in any sport, they're always talking about, we want to win, we want to win. But the sad part of, of it is they don't know how to win. And so either they'll play selfish or they have other uh, motives for, you know, not joining the uh, rest of the team and going out there and be willing to do the things that's necessary to win. Why don't you guys answer the question for me? Did Jerry Buss buy a championship for the Lakers, or can Detroit or um, Indiana beat them? 
Don't don't answer me too quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that was a question for both of these yeah. guys up yeah. here. <laughs> Well, Shaquille, he's a difference maker, you know, and what hurt Minnesota was losing Sammy Cassell. And and, and basically, that was it because Minnesota was pretty much in every game, even though they didn't didn't have an answer for uh, Shaquille. And it's going to be the same way with Detroit or Indiana, but Detroit, I think they're, uh, I think they're defensively tougher than Minnesota. They got it more depth in Minnesota, and Detroit. Their 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 players represent their town. That's a tough town, and those guys uh, they they're going to respect Shaq, and them, but they're going to come at him. I think JJ said it earlier. You got to know how to win. In '78, the Sonics knew how to win, but we're just missing that little sliver of extra oomph. And the next season, all season long, you could see how losing that final game the year before had affected them in a positive way. Well, the Lakers are, what, going for four out of five? They know how to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, they, and look at how they played during the year. They were an atrocity they for were. three quarters of the season. An atrocity. And then they come down to the last 20 games or so, and they just they turn the light switch on. You always say they can't turn the switch on and off. They turned it on. How would you rank the Sonics championship with some of the other notable achievements in Seattle sports, like the uh, 1917? This would be the only one. <laughs> First of all. Second of all, uh, I mean, think about it. You know, you're almost 100 years since that hockey thing that was sort of an accident. <laughs> Second of all, you know, someone on a website recently pointed out that Cleveland is the only city that's gone longer without a major championship than Seattle in cities where there are three pro sports, three major league sports. So I think that's just such a testament to the 79 champions, and it just makes it so much more amazing now. I mean, what if there had been five other championships? I don't know if we'd be doing this. But but I, I just I just marvel at that. I know that year I was on the speaking circuit. I about 80 speeches I gave around the state, and I told everybody, I said, enjoy what the Sonics have done this year and enjoy it to its hilt because I said it probably will be a long time before it ever happens again. Here we are 25 years later and they're, they're still working. I mean, it's, Did you think it's, it would be that long? Well, I tell you, what they, what they did was, was a wonderful thing. I mean, it, it's a real defining moment in, in sports history in Seattle, I think, uh, to take a chance because the NBA even then, it was a tough league. Yeah, well, talk a little went, bit about um, NBA like in 1967 when the Sonics were an expansion team. Because you were there as the voice of the Sonics. Yeah. So what was it like then? I mean, what, well, what, what did the city was, think about it, the team? It, it, it expanded and grew very rapidly. When I first came into the league, the year before, there were only 12 teams in the league. The year I came into the league as a broadcaster in 67, they put the Seattle and San Diego in, so there were 14 teams. Now what do you have? 30 teams, I believe, something like that. But it was during during the 70s. That that the the uh, that the NBA really started growing, and then when the ABA sent their teams over and they joined up and with Dr. J and everything, uh, you know the the interest became more and more, and uh, and like JJ was also mentioning, the guys are just getting bigger for one thing and faster, I think, because yeah. there there are more and and they, they, so many more of them are working hard as young guys to come in. So I think probably the talent they have now is probably more than than, than we had then. But everything is, is relative. Because I think the athleticism. Huh? I think the athleticism is better, you know. But once again, it becomes all relevant. Sonics, for instance, they got two guys. They claim they're six nine, six ten. Richard Lewis and Redmanovic, but they play like they're six four, six five. You know, they spot up shooters. And you got that height. You know, you should learn how to play with your back to the basket and take advantage of some of your height. So I, I think it's I think it's all I think it's all relevant. Plus, I just can't say enough. These guys, the majority of them, they can't shoot, and a lot of them uh, don't have the pride to go out there and get motivated and fight to win. You know, Jerome James. 
Here this guy, he's, he's got a prototype body to be a great center in the league. And seemed like he takes off, he played one good game, then he takes off eight games. How can you, can't, if you're not consistent, you're never going to be a big-time player or a winner. And that will conclude our uh, dip back into the archives from a panel discussion way back on June 1st, 2004, marking 25 years since the Seattle Supersonics one and only world championship. Uh, that was uh, the late uh, John Johnson, or JJ, we heard there at the end, and the late Bob Blackburn, the voice of the Supersonics. Also part of the panel was Greg Heberlin, a retired journalist from the Seattle Times, who's still alive and kicking and uh, on Facebook. Um, we'll post a link to this, to the... Um, the podcast episode, so you can listen to that uh, panel discussion again. And uh, it's just, uh, it's amazing how much, uh, how great it is to hear those voices, uh, Bob Blackburn and JJ like that, and what a great conversation. One thing I meant to say is that while we were having that discussion on the old uh, the old stage, the old McEachern Auditorium at Mohai, the championship trophy from 79 was there on display on the stage. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, when the Sonics whole debacle thing happened a few years later and the Sonics moved away, all that cool stuff like that remained in the collection of the Museum of History and Industry. So I'm pretty sure that stuff is still there at Mohai and uh, hopefully uh, once again someday be part of the continue, contiguous history of a new NBA team to replace the team that left now, what, almost 16 years ago. All right, well, I want to uh, – it's this Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. We've got 10 more minutes left on the show. Coming up at 9 o'clock is Jay's Radio Hour. He's got – he's just arriving now. I see he's got a – hand cart full of 78 records and all sorts of other great surprises of vintage audio from the early part of the 20th century. Stay tuned for that. Um, before we do that, though, I want to invite our guest on the air. Let's see if we can get him hooked up here on the phone line. And let's see, is Nick Bierman there joining us? Nick, can you hear me? Uh, Nick, can you hear me? Yeah. Ah, there you are. There's always there's like seven buttons to press, and sometimes I only press six of them. So there you are. <laughs> so um, you're with Save Ryan House. That we've been a frequent guest. Uh, you were on our uh, program we did live from the Parkland School a couple weeks ago, and we have some of your other colleagues down there. Um, but you guys had your big spaghetti dinner tonight down at Purdy's in uh, in Sumner. I'm sorry I wasn't able to join you. How did it go? Oh, it was great. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, no, it was great. We we had more than sixty people. Uh, buy tickets, and and all of that went toward donations. So that meant uh, more than fifteen hundred dollars in sales raised uh, to help save the Ryan House. Uh, we had a packed a packed room. Uh, everybody enjoying spaghetti and garlic bread and uh, Caesar salad, and it was just <laughs> a great time. And even more so than the funds we raised, we had a community discussion. So we had the ability for people to talk, share their ideas. Uh, express, you know, their not only their their concern for saving the Ryan House, but also ideas of how to get more work done and how to keep going with this effort. So it was it was a great time. Okay, so I have lots of questions. Number one, did you did did you have seconds? Did you have thirds? How much of the all you can eat spaghetti did you take advantage of? Well, I didn't get to eat a whole lot because I was very busy. So <laughs> I ended up having to take some home at the end of the night. <laughs> okay, okay. And uh, this was at now Purdy's restaurant there in Sumner. Is that tell me about Purdy's? Is that a fixture there on the on the on the Sumner landscape? It's uh, it's pretty public house over on the east side, sort of uh, near the YMCA and the Winco, right along the, the uh, State Route 410. Oh, gotcha. Highway. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they have uh, not only did they have uh, a, a restaurant area where we had the all-you-can-eat buffet, but they also have uh, a bar with uh, almost any game that you want uh, is broadcast there. So like, it's a great place to go for like Seahawks games and things like that. Uh, and then also any MLS games, like Sounders games, are on TV there too. And then there's an arcade over on the other side, um, and you can play old arcade games from the <laughs> 1980s. So it's great. It's a great establishment. Now, I don't want to get too granular here, but did they actually did they donate everything, or did you have to pay some modest fee for what they provided, and then charge more for the tickets to make it a fundraiser? Uh, we charged a flat amount for the. For the tickets, so it was twenty five dollars a person for the meal, and that covered all of the food. Uh, we did have to pay uh, about fifty percent of that uh -huh. for the use of the, the establishment. Sure, and also the fact that you know the kitchen and the staff they were doing all the work. We didn't have to provide any of the food, so that's why yeah. it was such a great deal for us. Gotcha. We didn't have to do any of the cooking; they took care of all of that. And and yes, they took about fifty percent of. Uh, what we made, 
but we get to keep the rest, and, and that works out great for us. Plus, we had uh, even more people who donated above and beyond what they, you know, what the ticket price was. So that's that's had, great. That's great. Yeah, we had fantastic. Yeah. We had over three thousand dollars extra rate, so it was fantastic. Oh, that's terrific. And um, and so you, this community discussion, any anything? What what was sort of the thrust of what people were saying, or what's the, anything anything new to report about the effort to preserve the Ryan House? Uh, a lot of it focused on legal efforts. So, like, what what can we do going forward? Uh, I mean, we have the one case that the Save Our Sumner Committee, headed by Nancy Ryan Dressel, uh, there's that one case that's in progress that will be heard in Pierce County Superior Court next month on March 11th. Okay. But then we've also had ideas of what other actions could be taken, or whether you know what what other actions could be supported and how some of this money could go toward legal defense if needed. Yeah. And last time you and I talked, and last time I doing a story for the other radio station, I reached out to the city of Sumner about this whole notion of this, the Ryan House, which dates to the, parts of it date to the 1860s. It was donated 100 years ago. It's been the city's library. It's this incredible, like, landmark on the, in the landscape there in Sumner for longer than anyone, anyone has been alive, of course. Um, and the, the notion of it was added to the most endangered list by the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation. And the city of Sumner, in my conversation with them, they seemed to, th- or it was an email exchange, seemed to think that the, the, they didn't get that the endangered part was the fact that the city wants to tear it down, not the fact that, like any old building, it has some structural issues that need to be addressed. Have you guys, is the legal thing mean you sort of can't really talk to the city of Sumner right now? Or is there any kind of a back channel discussion about cooperating with, with the city? Or, I mean, or am, I, am I asking, is that all off the record? <laughs> And we're live on the radio, so don't don't you know? Don't answer it if you can't answer it. <laughs> at the moment, at the moment, uh, there's really nothing that's like official going on. Uh, we certainly would like to have that kind of a discussion, and we're definitely open to that going forward. Uh, there are definitely people who are part of legal efforts who probably cannot be part of that discussion, but there are plenty of us who who are not, um, and and we're definitely open to the idea of. Uh, having the city apply for different types of grants. We've been looking at something called the Heritage Capital Grant, Heritage Capital Project Grant. Yeah, which comes out of the State Historical Society. That's a great, that's like a half million dollars, a million dollars. That can be a really significant amount of money for, for big projects. And that could be a huge part of what uh, the funds that, that we, we need to raise in order for the restoration to move forward. The rest of it would have to be matched from other sources, but that work had already been done and could be done again. So okay. the money could definitely be found. All right. Well, we have to wrap up our little show here in just a minute or two. But um, if people want to follow the efforts of your group and everything that's going on in Sumner to try to preserve this, this incredible piece of the city's history and the, really the region's history, what's the best place? Where's the best place to go for that kind of thing? Uh, the best place to go is our Save Ryan House Facebook group. Okay. That has the, the most up-to-date information. Uh, the Sumner Historical Society's website also has information, too, so that is SumnerHistoricalSociety.com. Okay. And keep us posted on that legal effort, because you said that's March 11th, right? And do you know, will that will the decision be announced at that March 11th hearing, or will they, will they take all the information in and come back with some kind of a ruling? We believe that that will be the day the judge will make a ruling, okay. because all the legal briefs have been filed already, and there had been the idea of, uh, motion for summary judgment, that, but the deadline has passed on all that. So I think this will be the the judge's bench ruling. Okay. All right. So it should be should be fairly quickly then. And obviously, there's plenty of other things that that can happen depending how that ruling goes. It doesn't exhaust all the possibilities. And I, I'm pulling for you guys, and I think you guys have a really good case, not just legally, but just you know, just in terms of morally and. What's, what's right? And, you know, for the fact that the Ryan House has been a big part of Sumner for so long, it's in all those city documents and everything. So, I anyway, keep us posted and good luck and congratulations on what sounds like a very successful spaghetti dinner. I I'm, I'm, didn't really have a chance to have dinner yet myself, so I'm kicking myself for not taking up on your invitation to make it down there tonight. But I really want to thank you for joining us on the show tonight, Nick Bierman. Yeah, thank you for so much for having me. I appreciate right. it very much. Thanks a lot, Nick. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good night. Say hi to everybody for me. Yes, we will. Thank you. Bye-bye. Nick Bierman with Save the Ryan House down in Sumner, Washington, Pierce County. I'm Felix Bunnell with Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Coming up next is Jay's Radio Hour. We'll see you next week.
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.